and a general who wants the son back. All right, that begs another question. And we really are gonna do some reading of story here. I, I'm taking a while setting this up. That's okay, I knew I would. You didn't, but I did. <laughs> Why does Joab want Absalom back? Joab is a fiercely loyal supporter of David. He's brutish, you know. He, he commits murder more than once when he shouldn't. He's got blood on his hands and he's kind of dumb about things. And yet, and yet, he's a military strategist. He's the one who figured out how to take Jerusalem. He's the one who figured out all you gotta do is climb up the water tunnel and get right into the city. No one else figured that out. Joab did and became David's commander because of that, First Chronicles 11 tells us. So he knows how to strategize. And a lot, of pe a lot of times, unwise people are really good at strategy. And that's Joab. Kyle and Delich say the principal reason that Joab wants Absalom back, the principal reason, no doubt, was that Absalom had the best prospect of succeeding to the throne. And Joab thought this was the best way to secure himself from punishment for the murder which he had committed. That is his murder against Abner that we read about back in 2 Samuel chapter three. I know it's a lot to keep, keep hold of here, but Joab is still guilty of the murder of Abner who was under David's protection when he killed him. David knows this. Joab knows this. So far, David hasn't done anything but Abner, or, or Joab now, Joab is thinking about his future. And he's all in for the next administration. <laughs> and he's wanting to secure himself, I think this is the background, again, this is where it's going, secure himself a place in the administration of Absalom. Again, he's a military strategist, and he is a manipulative, manipulative schemer, and he is out for his own political survival. That's a lot to pull out of just two verses. But, but you'll see it play out as we go through the rest of the chapter. Verse two. <laughs> so Joab sent to Tekoa. It's about 10 miles south of Jerusalem. It really is. I'm right on this one. And he brought a wise woman from there and said to her, please, pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning garments now, and do not anoint yourself with oil, but be like a woman who has been mourning for the dead many days, and then go to the king and speak to him in this manner. So note this, Joab put the words in her mouth. So these are gonna be Joab's words. What's he doing? He's got this wise woman from, by the way, his hometown, this is where Joab's from, this region. So he either knows her from before or knows of her as a, this is a woman who's got a reputation in the area for being wise. Maybe not wise like you think, really think skillful, think clever. She has a way with words. And Joab gives her the words, but she is known for the finesse. Verse four. Now when the woman of Tekoa spoke to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and prostrated herself and said, help, O king. The king said to her, what is your trouble? And she answered, truly I'm a widow, for my husband is dead. Well, that makes sense. Your maidservant had two sons, but the two of them struggled together in the field, and there was no one to separate them, so the one struck the other and killed him. Now behold, the whole family has risen against your maidservant. 
And they say, hand over the one who struck his brother that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed and destroy the heir also. Thus, they will extinguish my coal which is left as to leave my husband neither name nor remnant on the face of the earth. This is a, a, a touching, moving story. You know what? Joab knows David likes stories. David's an emotional guy. You see that in the Psalms. He's a musician, he's a lyricist, and he is moved by story. Just ask Natan, right? The Lord sent Natan with a story about a little lamb, a parable, and it moved David. Joab must be aware of this. David would have loved the parables of Jesus. So there's something of a, of a lover of stories here, but this story is nothing like Nathan's story or Natan. Natan's story was brought by God to bring about repentance. This story is a partisan ploy. Again, as Joab put the words into her mouth. And she begins to tell this story and to weave it. And in verse eight, obviously touched, the king said to the woman, go to your house, I will give orders concerning you. The woman of Tekoa said to the king, oh my Lord, the king, the iniquity is on me and my father's house but the king and his throne are guiltless. What's she doing? She is baiting him. So the king said, whoever speaks to you, bring him to me and he will not touch you anymore. And then she said, please let the king remember the Lord your God so that the avenger of blood will not continue to destroy. Otherwise, they will destroy my son. And he said, as the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. So she's baited him and now she's hooked him. And the woman said, please let your maidservant speak a word to my Lord the king. And he said, speak. The woman said, why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? And here's the reveal. For in speaking this word, the king is as one who is guilty. The king does not bring back his banished one. This is Joab's version of you're the man. But it's not a story of a lamb. This is now a story of just pure deceit. For we will surely die, she says, verse 14, and are like water spilled on the ground which cannot be gathered up again. Yet God does not take away life, but plans ways so that the banished one will not be cast out from him. Now the reason I've come to speak this word to my Lord the King is that your people have made me afraid. So your maidservant said, let me now speak to the King. Perhaps the King will perform the request of his maidservant. For the King will hear and deliver his maidservant from the hand of the man who would destroy both me and my son from the inheritance. And then your maidservant said, please let the word of my Lord the King, oh listen to this, be as comforting, be comforting for as the angel of God so is my Lord the King to discern good and evil flattery. This is all bait and switch and flattery and manipulation. She's trying to corner David. And she says, may the Lord your God be with you. And the king answered and said to the woman, please do not hide anything from me that I'm about to ask you. And the woman said, let my Lord the King please speak. So the king said, is the hand of Joab with you in all this? <laughs> he finally gets it. He picks it up. He gets what's going on. And the woman replied, more flattery, 
as your soul lives, my Lord the King, no one can turn to the right or to the left from anything that my Lord the King has spoken. Indeed, it was your servant Joab who commanded me. It was he who put all these words in the mouth of your maidservant. In order to change the appearance of things, your servant Joab has done this thing. But my Lord is wise, like the wisdom of the angel of God, to know all that is in the earth. So it's out. He's been moved. He's been touched. He's been baited. He's been hooked into making a statement that no harm would come. And now he's cornered, but he realizes it's all coming from Joab. Note this again in verse 20. He did it in order to change the appearance of things. Brothers and sisters, that is not the way of the people of God. Manipulation is not a tool of the follower of Jesus. To change the appearance of things, to use pretense or cunning or duplicity to get a desired end, that is not the way of the children of God. 1 John chapter 1, verse five, this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. That is, we walk in truth. We are honest one with another. That's the way of the people of God. Well, it, it's supposed to be. <laughs> I gotta confess to you, every time over the last, 30 plus years of ministry that I have tried to maneuver something, it has blown up in my face because that is not the way of God. Every time I've tried to play church politics, it goes wrong, every time. Rick, it sounds like you do it a lot. No, I really don't. I try not to, but sometimes your flesh rises up and you think, okay, here's the end game. This is where we need to get. And I got some obstacles there. How can we get around those? How can we tell stories that will, you know, motivate or move someone's heart to kind of get out of the way of where I think we're supposed to go? That's not the way of the children of God. We walk in the light as he is in the light. What if Joab had just gone to David and said, David, here's the deal. You know your son is charismatic. You know the people love him. You know he could be a great king, but not from Geshur. We ought to bring him back. Furthermore, I know you can't stop thinking about him. We gotta make this right before the people. I mean, what if he had approached David that way? Just in honesty, in openness, in the light. And this is a challenge, and I put it out to you as much as it has been for a long time. This challenge set before me is that our way of doing things must be open and honest and not by trickery or cunning. Even if we think the end result is good, we walk in the light together. And I know in this political world, that seems awfully simplistic. In fact, somewhat foolish. Just to put it out there, I mean, <laughs> what if people don't respond the way you want them to? Well, maybe they're not supposed to. How about we entrust things to the Lord? We walk openly and honestly with one another. And then we let, we let God take care of the rest. Well, verse 21 the king said to Joab, behold, now I will surely do this thing. Go, therefore, bring back the young man Absalom. First sign right there, the things are not good in David's mind. 
because Joab's ploy worked. Okay, good. Well, I got what I wanted. He's gonna bring back Absalom. I can go get him now. We baited, we hooked, we revealed, we cornered, we flattered David, and David now finally gives in. But notice he doesn't say, go get Absalom, my son. He says, go get the young man, Absalom. He's detached here. This is impersonal. David yields to Joab, but not with his heart. Verse 22, Joab fell on his face to the ground, prostrated himself, and blessed the king. And then Joab said, Today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight. Haven't I, haven't I, haven't I? Oh, my Lord, the king, in that the king has performed the request of his servant. This is Joab's self-preservation. Good, we're on the same page. All right, I've found favor in your sight. Brothers and sisters, beware of the flatterers. We've talked about this before. The Bible brings this up. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse five. Paul says, as representatives of the gospel, he says, we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. Paul was able to say, in my missionary journeys, we came with the gospel, plain and simple. We came with the word of truth. We did not come trying to butter people up to get them in the doors of the church. That's not how it works. Romans 16, 17, he would write, I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned and turn away from them. Such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites and by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. Application, the gospel is not a tool of manipulation. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not something we take to strong arm people or entrap people or maneuver them into the kingdom without their will. It just doesn't work that way. And sometimes we think it does. Sometimes in church ministry, we function that way. We set up programs to, to bring people into an emotional place where then they can be dinged with the gospel. I told Cheryl the other night, I said, you know what, I'm not sure I'm so good at altar calls. And it's not because of responses or anything. It's just, man, I come down to the end of teaching and, and what I wanna do is what, what I see Jesus do a lot. Finish teaching and just walk away. I love that about Jesus, you know? And you know, the wise man, a foolish man, one built his house on the rock, one built his house on the sand, the one on the sand fell, the one on the rock stood, so it is, you know, if you follow my word, see ya, and he's out. That's it. No altar call, no emotional sticking it to people, no manipulation just the plain truth of the word of God, which I suspect is why you're here tonight. Because you want the plain truth of the word of God. And, and we're not, we're kind of tired of manipulation. That's what the rest of the world always does. To try and bait us and switch us into things. Man, if the heart isn't getting changed, then the person isn't getting in no matter how we manipulate the situation. That's why Paul said, 2 Corinthians 2.17, we are not like many peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. Here's the gospel, here's the truth. Jesus died to save sinners, of which Paul said, and I agree, I am chiefest. I'm not agreeing that he is, I'm agreeing that I am. But he died to save me, that's the good news. Who doesn't want that? And so we bring the gospel in openness and not with manipulation. We bring the gospel, we share it, and then you know what we do from there? 
We let the spirit take over because a changed heart is his business. He moves on that. Well, Joab got what he wanted. He's very excited about that. He arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. However, the king said, let him turn to his own house and let him not see my face. Is that a father who longs for his son? So Absalom turned to his own house and did not see the king's face. Skip down to verse 28. Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem and did not see the king's face. I can hardly go to the store in Oak Harbor without seeing one of y'all. You know, or Anacortes especially. I mean, it's actually far worse than Anacortes. I, I used to live in Anacortes as opposed to on this side of the bridge and I would go to Safeway and you know, you make those late night trips to Safeway and you're like, no one's gonna see me and you throw on a pair of shorts and maybe your wife's pink sweatshirt. I never did that and, and pull on some Ugg boots and you're walking around looking like, you know, something straight out of downtown San Fran and, and you walk into Safeway and five people from the church go, hey, Pastor Rick. Oh, you gotta be kidding me. Jerusalem is not that big. Jerusalem is smaller than Anacortes. The old city, the city of David, two years. Absalom lived there and never saw the face of his dad. That is remarkable to me. That is an icy reception at best. And I hate to say it, but David is not showing the same kind of kindness and grace that God had shown him same kind of mercy and forgiveness he had received. Ephesians 4.32, you've heard this so many times. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other. How? Just as God and Christ also has forgiven you. There's our standard. That is the motivator of our forgiveness. How has God and Christ forgiven us? As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. Have you ever tried to figure that one out, plot it out on a map? Psalm 103, verse 12, as far as the east is from the west. So, so go ahead, start in the east and just begin heading west. You know where you end up? Right back in the east. <laughs> you never get there. You know, you just go round and round. That's, that's what God did to our sin. It's so far out, we'll never get back to it. He's removed it from us. Hebrews 10, 17, their sins, their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. Brothers and sisters, that is the motivation of grace that he has so graced me, how can I do anything else to anyone else in my life, no matter what they've done to me? And as of yet, nobody has nailed me to a cross. And if God can forgive that, if God can use that as the singular device or tool of forgiveness, then what else can I do? Motivator of forgiveness is not, do they deserve it? It is not, have they proven themselves worthy? It is not, can I trust them now? It's none of that. The motivation of grace is that you have been given grace. Well, verse 25, now in all Israel, no one was as handsome as Absalom, so highly praised from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no defect in him. And when he cut the hair of his head, and it was at the end of every year that he cut it, whether he needed to or not, 
I added that. It was heavy on him, so he cut it. He weighed the hair of his head at 20 shekels by the king's weight. That's five to seven pounds of hair. Now, Cheryl cut my hair this morning. I, Mark, I'm pretty sure I didn't even get an ounce. Used to be I'd go get my hair cut and it'd be all over the floor. And as she finished cutting it, I looked down and went, wow. That was a waste of time. So <laughs> this guy is weighing his hair. Who does that? Someone who's aware of his hair. Someone who is, you know, a bit into himself. This is the guy who is looking in the mirror every morning and going, you look marvelous. He is the Fabio of the day. You know, he, he's the full package. He would have been on American Idol, no question. This guy, and the people loved him, and you know who, who he reminds me of? He reminds me of Saul. This guy's a king. He's got the hair, he's got the look, he's got the stature. Man, go get him, bring him back. He is the obvious heir. This guy is the king and yet it's been five years of total separation between David and Absalom. Three up in Geshur, now two in Jerusalem. And yet, Absalom is out courting the people who apparently love his hair. It goes on and says, to Absalom, verse 27, there were born three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar, his sister's name, sister who was raped. He loves her. She was a woman of beautiful appearance. That's the daughter of Absalom. Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem, did not see the king's face. Then, and I love this little story, this little vignette, if you will, Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king, but he would not come to him. So he sent again a second time, but he would not come. Therefore, he said to his servants, see, Joab's field is next to mine, and he has barley there. Go set it on fire. I'm gonna get this guy's attention one way or another. So you can't make this stuff up. This is just the best. So Absalom's servants set the field on fire and Joab arose and came to Absalom at his house and said to him, why have your servants set my field on fire? And Absalom answered Joab, behold, I sent for you saying, come here that I may send you to the king and say, why have I come to you from Geshur? It would be better for me if I was still there or still to be there. Now, therefore, let me see the king's face. And if there is an iniquity in me, let him put me to death. <laughs> All right. This guy's a little bold. Five years. And finally, verse 33, Joab came to the king and told him, and he called for Absalom. Thus he came to the king and prostrated himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. And it's written very coldly. This is very proper. All right, bring him to the palace. Absalom does the requisite falling down before the king. The king does the requisite, kisses him. That's it. And, and I read it that way because this relationship is severely broken. And note with David, it's not what the Bible tells us, it's what it doesn't tell us. It doesn't tell us anything about, did he judge Absalom? Did he speak to or about the murder of Amnon? 
Did he condemn Absalom? Absalom threw out a challenge. Let the king kill me. Bring me before him. Let him judge me. He's so tough. He's so strong. He didn't do anything. Is David just angry or is he avoiding the situation? We don't know. But Absalom now has proven a point. David is weak, at least in Absalom's eyes. This is a king who isn't gonna do anything. And no doubt the kiss itself probably to Absalom felt weak. But hold that thought. There's one more takeaway that I, that I wanna show you is something we skipped right through in chapter 14, but it's a, a beautiful little truth that is set in the middle of this story of manipulation. Look at verse 14 again. The middle of the verse, the wise woman of Tekoa says, yet God does not take away life, but plans ways so that the banished one will not be cast out from him. How true. You ever felt like a banished one? Like maybe you didn't have a place in church because of how you were living or what you had done, or maybe you had been hurt and, and felt cast out in another place. Listen, the woman of Tekoa is right. God has made a place for the banished ones. And all of us at one time or another in our lives have felt banished. God has made a way for you. It is not the Father's heart to leave you or leave me exiled because of sin. Ephesians 2 verse four, God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And he raised us up with him. And listen to this, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. This is what our father does. When he brings us out of banishment, when he brings us home, he doesn't say, they shall not see my face. He raises us up with Christ and seats us in heavenly places. That's called a proleptic phrase. It's written as if it's already happened because it is so absolutely certain to happen. He's raised us up in Christ. That is not manipulative either. That's God's promise. You have been banished. Your sin that found you out has banished you. My banished ones, I have made a way for you home. It's interesting, she says that he plans ways. God does not take away life, but plans ways so the banished one will not be cast out from him. And the word ways is literally devices. He plans devices. There's only one device of the Lord, and it's the cross. It is the device of God the intentional method of God to use the device of Calvary's cross that we might be brought back. But again, not like Absalom. And there are people sitting in churches who feel like they've been brought back like Absalom. Well, I'm here. Do I matter to anybody? You matter to Jesus. And he brings you back. See, Absalom is allowed in the kingdom, but he's not allowed to see the face of the king. We're not like Absalom. We are brought back as prodigals. We're brought back into the household. We're brought back and embraced in the arms of a father who weeps over us, who has been watching 
for our return. That is the story that Jesus told. You know it well. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Father said to his slaves, quickly bring the best robe and put it on him and put the ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf, kill it. Let's eat and celebrate. This son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and he's been found and they began to celebrate and that is how God brings the banished ones home. He doesn't stick us off in a house somewhere in the southern end of the city of David. And in fact, while Revelation 22, four says, they will see his face and his name will be on their forehead. When Absalom finally does see David, David kisses him in that weak response to a rebellious son, and that's it. It is not like our story. So Absalom goes away, and chapter 15 opens up. Part two, part two, conspiracy. Conspiracy. Chapter 15, verse one. It came about after this that Absalom provided for himself a chariot and horses, and 50 men as runners before him. Why? Look at me, people. I'm a warrior. I'm strong. I'm mighty. It's been so long since I've been able to do that. (laughs) He used to rise early and stand beside the way to the gate. And when any man had a suit to come to the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, from what city are you? And he would say, your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. And then Absalom would say to him, see, your claims are good and right, but no man listens to you on the part of the king. No one's working for you in Washington. No one's doing the things that I could do for you. See how this plays? It's no different now than it was 3,000 years ago. And moreover, verse four, Absalom would say, oh, that one would appoint me judge in the land. Then every man who has any suit or cause could come to me and I would give him justice. I can fix Washington. I'm sorry, but the parallels are just stunning to me. And when a man came near to prostrate himself before him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. And in this manner, Absalom dealt with all Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole away the hearts of the men of Israel. He is mounting an intense political campaign to win the throne and oust his father as king. And from an earthly perspective, this is political will. From a heavenly perspective, God hates it. And I cannot underscore that enough. Proverbs 6.16 tells us there are six things which the Lord hates, yes, seven which are an abomination to him, which is Hebrew poetry for number seven being the worst. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil. By the way, all five of those describe Absalom. And then a false witness who utters lies and one who spreads strife among brothers. This is the Absalom conspiracy. And it's the game that he's playing The seventh thing is an abomination to God. He absolutely hates strife. 
Remember this, Romans 16, 17, we read earlier. Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eyes on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned and turn away from them. Those who cause dissension, those who divide. Ephesians 4, verse two, Paul says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. That is God's way, not dividing people up, not dividing and conquering, not conspiratorial manipulations. If there is one endeavor of God's love, unity is it. He wants that his people be together under the unifying name of Jesus, by the unifying peace of the Holy Spirit, and by the truth of his word, we unify around that. Well, verse seven. Now it came about at the end of 40 years that Absalom said to the king, please let me go and pay my vow, which I vowed to the Lord in Hebron. Okay, hang on a second. Some of your translations, if you're not using the NASB, say four years. NASB translates 40 years, but in the margin it says some ancient versions render four. Well, is it four or is it 40? I don't know. Keep reading. <laughs> it's interesting because it, some say 40 years, maybe, maybe if it's 40 years, in fact, then the word 40 and the Septuagint, the Greek translation, the word is 40. So the translation that was made 280 years before Jesus from the Hebrew to the Greek says 40. But there are other ancient Hebrew manuscripts that say four. So some scribe along the way got confused and left off the zero. Someone got it wrong. And, and we don't know where or who. It does not change in the slightest the gospel of Jesus Christ. It doesn't change the veracity or integrity of the word of God. It's just either 40 or four. And by the way, with a lot of these, when, when you find these tiny little things that people say, oh, look, look, there's a contradiction. I suspect that in all the cases that both will somehow be true. What do you mean? Well, it came about at the end of four years. That could be four years that Absalom is there in Jerusalem and he's mounting this campaign and drawing people to him. If you say it came about after 40 years, well, that could be 40 years from, that could mean Absalom's 40 years old. It could mean 40 years after David's anointing. There are a number of ways that it could make sense either way. So again, I could spend a lot more time on that. I think I would put you to sleep if I did. So keep reading. He says to David, please let me go pay my vow, which I vowed to the Lord in Hebron. By the way, that's a lie. But he's trying to, you know, undermine the king. For your servant vowed a vow while I was living in Geshur in Aram, saying, if the Lord shall indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will serve the Lord. Well, the king said to him, go in peace. So he arose and he went to Hebron. But Absalom sent spies throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then you shall say, Absalom is king in Hebron. Why would Absalom declare himself king in Hebron? Anyone? Because that's where David was first declared king. He was first king in Hebron for seven and a half years and then declared king over all Israel in, in Jerusalem. It starts in Hebron. Absalom knows this. He is trouncing his father's kingdom. He is trampling on David's rule and reign. Absalom's king in Hebron. It says, when you hear that, 
When you hear the sound of the trumpet, start to shout, Absalom's king in heaven. Uh, verse 11, then 200 men went with Absalom from Jerusalem who were invited and went, interesting, innocently. They did not know anything. They're just going because he's got good hair. I don't know, they're just following him down to Hebron, but they're not in on the ploy. They don't know about the plan. And Absalom, verse 12, sent for Ahitophel, the Gilonite, David's counselor, from his city Gilo, while he was offering the sacrifices, and the conspiracy was strong, for the people increased continually with Absalom. So he goes down to Hebron, not to offer sacrifice, but to declare himself king, and to gather people around to him in Hebron, that then he might make a charge on, ultimately, Jerusalem. Absalom has won the hearts of the people of Israel in a very short time, maximum four years. He's done this so quickly. It, it reminds me actually of another who will win the hearts of the world in a very short time, a globally calculated conspiracy. I won the Bible refers to simply as Antichrist. It's gonna take him less than three and a half years to be in control over all the world. Revelation 13 verse three says, the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast and they worship the dragon, that's the beast's right-hand guy, because he, or, or that, actually the dragon, sorry, that's Satan, because he gave his authority to the beast, so the whole world, can you imagine this? You think things are bad in America right now? The entire globe is gonna be filled with Satan worshipers in the tribulation. They will worship the dragon, they will follow the beast, because the dragon gives his authority to the beast and they worship the beast saying, who is like the beast and who is able to wage war with him? And Absalom is a picture of that a precursor, if you will. What's tragic in the story before us is you've got people who get caught up in conspiracy and they really are innocent of it. They either haven't thought it through, they really don't know what is going on, but man, they get so easily stirred up and you've got these 200 men, 200 men who go with Absalom from Jerusalem, I don't know, on a joyride, they don't know what he's doing, but they're being used by him it reminds me of another time, and this happens over and over in history where mobs gather, and people don't know the real truth behind what's going on, but man, they see, they see a leader, and they gather behind the leader, and they're ready to go with that leader, and they really don't know the truth. I'm, I, and I'm not, by the way, don't think I'm trying to point at anybody right now in America. I'm not, I'm not, I'm making a different point. <laughs> I'm making a point about a mob in Jerusalem who were gathered there for Passover. And in Matthew 27, verse 20, the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds. Mark 15, 11 says they stirred up the crowds. People who were just there, they didn't know really what was going on, but people start to chant and it's like, yeah, 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 crucify him. And the crowds began to shout. And you gotta know, there were people in the crowds who just went along didn't really even know why. Mobs are a universally bad idea. They just, you know, you, nothing good comes of a mob. People getting stirred up in mass, some cluelessly, others doing and saying things we would never do or say on our own. But man, the tribe's doing this. Be careful of the march of culture. Be careful of the the large opinion, be careful of the 
pressure that comes of the larger group. Matthew 7, 13, Jesus said, enter through the narrow gate. The gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction and there are many who enter through it. The gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life and there are few who find it. The broad way is not the best way. Well, all these people following after Absalom, they're excited for Absalom. Ahithophel, David's own counselor, we'll hear more about him. He's now aligning with Absalom, verse 13. And the story from here to the end gets very sad. A messenger came to David saying, the hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. David said to his servants who were there with him at Jerusalem, arise, let us flee. Otherwise, none of us will escape from Absalom. Go in haste or he will overtake us quickly and bring down calamity on us and strike the city, note that, strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servants said to the king, behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king chooses. So the king went out and all his household with him, but the king left 10 concubines to keep the house. Why didn't David see this coming? Why wasn't he more alert to the fact that his own son was amassing a coup against his kingdom? Where is the spiritual insight that we've known in David before? Where's the intuition? This is a spiritual guy. This is a guy who knows what's up. Where's the intuition of a man after God's own heart? It's a very sad moment. Listen, David is well into his 60s. We, we can guess probably 66, 67 years old at this point. But that's not the problem. It's not because of his age. He'll die at 70, by the way, so he's close to the end of his life when this happens. But he didn't miss it because of his age. I, I think he missed it because David is in a spiritually weakened state and has been since Natan came to him with the story of the lamb. He's, in, he's just in a, he's been forgiven by God, but I'm not sure that David's forgiven himself. Hardest thing for followers of Jesus, by the way, right there, hardest thing for anybody coming to faith in Jesus is not the forgiveness and grace of God, it's the forgiveness of self. I can't forgive myself for what I did. Yeah, but God did. And honestly, his forgiveness is the one that matters. But when we can't forgive ourselves, when we can't get over it, and I think at this point, not because of his age, but just because of the mileage, David's life has taken a toll on him. I mean, look at this. This is not the David we know. Flee, run. Come on, let's just, let's just go. Proverbs 20, verse 29 says this. A quick side note here for y'all. It says, the glory of young men is their strength. So those young men, young women in, in, in our audience tonight, that's all right. That's your glory, you know? It's your strength. The honor of old men is their gray hair. I like that verse more and more. <laughs> I just, I pointed out, because I wanna say this to you, younger brothers and sisters, pray now that you will have an ever-increasing faith. Don't, don't let, you, know, you look out over the years and don't let the false sense of invincibility get you. Pray now that your faith will just always be on the increase and it will never cease. 
Don't give in, grow up. Grow up in your faith. 1 Timothy 4.12, let no one look down on your youthfulness, but in speech, conduct, love, faith, purity, show yourself an example to those who believe. We have it backwards. We think, okay, young people need to look at the example of the older people. Look, the Bible says if you're young and you're in Jesus and you have faith, man, you be the example. You show the older people how it's done by true, solid faith in Jesus. 2 Timothy 2.22, flee from youthful lusts. Pursue righteousness and faith and love and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Let that be in young life. Let that be your passion and your desire to increase in your faith. And older brothers and sisters, keep praying that your faith would increase. Don't stop. You know what? It ain't over till the trumpet sounds. And until then, we are to be people whose faith increases because life is hard. If we just live life without Jesus, it will beat you up. It will wear you down and you will get to a point where you're just done with everything. You'll get to a point where you'll even flee the beloved city of the Lord. Like David is now fleeing. Hebrews 3 verse six says, Christ was a son over his house whose house we are if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Hebrews 3.14, for we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance, that's when I first came to faith, firm until the end. That's an increasing faith. That's what, what empowers life from young to old. And Jesus said in Revelation 2.10, be faithful until death and I'll give you the crown of life. That's the challenge before us. But here with David, we have a mournful march. This is, again, it is atypical of David. This is the boy who fought the lion and the bear. This is a young man who killed a giant. This is the outlaw who outsmarted Saul. This is the great warrior king who established mighty Israel in the Middle East, and now he runs without a fight? Why? Why is David fleeing Jerusalem? Now, some think he'd rather leave than see Jerusalem come under civil war. Okay, he, he, it's a beloved city to him. Maybe, maybe David's thinking, we gotta get out because I'm not gonna duke it out with Absalom in this city. I'm not gonna let him tear it down. Maybe. Maybe David is beginning to understand the prophecy of Natan as he sees it unfolding before his eyes. Remember this, 2 Samuel 12, 11, thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion. He'll lie with your wives in broad daylight. Indeed, you did it secretly. I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. Maybe David's seeing that and saying, this is the punishment of God. I, I, I can't resist. Maybe it's just because all the enemies in the world are not as devastating to a person as the enemies who come from within your own family. So David departs Zion, the city of David. But we're gonna end with this. So, so here's, here's your little, I'm gonna give you three points, four points. Ready? As David flees the city, he does not do so without the father's watchful eye. I read through, the first time I read through this, I'm like, this is just really depressing. And then I kept reading and I started to see 
He is not walking alone. God never gives David up. This is the story of David. Okay, hear me on this. Of all the study we've done of David, this is the story of David. It's not David did a great job. It's not David was strong. It's not David is a man after God's own heart. It's God never gives David up. He never lets go of him. And he promised you and me the same thing. Jesus said, John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give eternal life to them. They will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. I mean, you can almost hear Jesus say, go ahead, try. <laughs> I will not let go. He says, my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. When God's got you, God's Gotcha. Now, quickly watch this, because in this flight of David, one gift after another is gonna follow. He's gonna start getting gifts, and the first one is the gift of fellowship. The gift of fellowship, verse 17. The king went out and all the people with him, and they stopped at the last house. That's kind of sad. One more step, and we're out of the city. But, says all his servants passed on beside him. So David stops there and they continue on knowing this is the direction we're going. All the Keratites and all the Pelatites and all the Gittites, 600 men who had come with him from Gath passed on before the king. How amazing. All these years later, the same 600 who had gone out to David who became his mighty men are still with him. They have not betrayed him. David leaves Jerusalem watching all, I know you, I know you, I know you. You fought with me here, you fought with me there. We struggled together. You have been with me all this time. And they're all marching before him as he heads out of Jerusalem, the gift of fellowship. David can realize, though he is king, he is not alone. He's not alone. You know, that's why we're at church. This is why God calls for Christians to fellowship. Even something as simple as this, you sit in the middle of an auditorium on a Wednesday night and you look around and go, I'm not the only one following Jesus. I am not alone in this. We have a fellowship. And here, 600, they pass before. The gift of fellowship, they know who their king is. Secondly, secondly, the gift of a friend. Look at verse 19. The king then said to Itay the Gittite, why will you also go with us? Return and remain with the king, for you are a foreigner and also an exile. Return to your own place. You came only yesterday, and shall I today, in other words, you hadn't been there a long time, and shall I today make you wander with us while I go where I will? Return and take back your brothers. And then David says these two beautiful words, mercy and truth be with you in the Hebrew, grace and truth, grace and truth. Grace and truth are realized in Jesus Christ. This is the spirit of Christ. I think inspiring David. Grace and truth be with you, he says. And then verse 29, or 21, but Itay answered the king and said, as the Lord lives, and as my Lord the king lives, surely wherever my Lord the king may be, whether for death or for life, there also your servant will be. Therefore, David said to Itay, Go pass over. So Atay the Gittite passed over with all his men and all the little ones who were with him. And it's such a sweet moment in a very sad, painful story. The fellowship of these men walking by. And then here comes Atay, and David goes, no, 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 no. Go, go, it's okay. You, you go back. 
Proverbs 18, 24 tells us there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And that's a tay. He, he is such a friend to David. By the way, <laughs> Etay is a Gittite. What does that mean? He is a Philistine from Gath. But he has aligned himself with David. This is a picture a Gentile is now coming alongside the king of Israel. Perhaps even a prophetic hint of an outsider who is walking with the king. And this outsider refuses to leave him. Compare him to Ahithophel. Ahithophel, who is David's trusted counselor, but now has betrayed him to Absalom to join up there. But hey, think about this. Ask yourself the question, can you, as a servant of the king, speak like Etay? Can you say, as the Lord lives and as my Lord the king lives, surely wherever my Lord the king may be, whether for death or for life, there also your servant will be. Jesus said, whoever takes up his cross and follows me. Wherever you are, Jesus, that's where I wanna be. Whatever you're doing, that's what I wanna be doing. That is the heart of this servant. And this is the gift of a friend in the midst of the gift of a fellowship. My friends, even if the entire world seems like it's mounting a successful coup against the Lord Jesus, will you remain where he is? Will you be where he is? And by the way, you might wanna note this. Ite's name, it means with you. Isn't that awesome? With you. I am with you, my Lord the King. Next thing we see, number three, is the gift of faith. The gift of faith. Watch it come. While the country was weeping with a loud voice, verse 23, all the people passed over. The king also passed over the brook Kidron, and all the people passed over toward the way of the wilderness. Now behold, Zadok, he's the high priest, also came with all the Levites with him, carrying the ark of the covenant of God. And they set down the ark of God, and Abiatar came up until all the people had finished passing from the city. And the king said to Zadok, return the ark of God to the city. If I find favor in the sight of the Lord, then he will bring me back again and show me both it and his habitation. But if he should say thus, I have no delight in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me as seems good to him. This is a gift of faith. That is David's faith. That is the man after God's own heart. In essence saying, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well with my soul. Lord Jesus, no matter what happens, no matter where my life takes me, it is well with my soul. You are God, I am not, I trust you. So we see this faith emerge in David. It's marvelous. What causes it? Verse 27, the king also said to Zadok the priest, are you not a seer? Return to the city in peace and your two sons with you, your son Ahimaaz and Jonathan, the son of Abiatar, See, I'm going to wait at the fords of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. Therefore, Zadok and Abiatar returned the ark of God to Jerusalem and they remained there. But what is it that spurred all of a sudden this, this moment of David's faith coming out of his mouth? It's the ark. David sees the ark and faith comes. The ark is, you know the stories of David and the ark bring it up to Jerusalem the wrong way and what happened, and then bringing it up the right way. The ark spoke volumes to David, and he knew that the ark represented the very presence of God. 
and here comes the ark. Why doesn't David take it with him? Well, he remembers the story of Eli and his two idiot sons and what the ark happened with, you know, the Philistines and all that. No, no. <laughs> Send it back. Put it in the tabernacle. But for David, it was a moment of clarity. God is God. God is God. We would do well to pay attention to that, to, to, to look to the ark. If your faith is faltering, if you're feeling weak, look to the ark. And Bible students, I hope you know what I mean. That acacia wood box overlaid with pure gold, bearing the law and the manna and Aaron's rod that budded the whole thing is a picture of the presence of Jesus Christ. Look to the ark. That will bring faith every single time. You're struggling, you're hurting, you feel kicked out. Look to Jesus. When you look to Jesus, faith comes. Hebrews chapter 12, verse one, and I can't read this enough. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, oh, like 600 men? <laughs> Let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Why has he sat down? Because it's finished. Because it's done. Kingdom's coming. Be assured. So David sees the ark, sends it back, and now he's crossed over the brook Kidron. By the way, Kidron, that's the Kidron Valley. It stands between the Mount of Olives on the, to the east and then the Temple Mount on the west, and the Kidron is called the Kidron because Kidron means dark red. It's like dark red blood. Blood would flow down there from the temple on days of sacrifice and fill that ravine. And so they call it the Kidron. David's now crossed the dark red Kidron, and he's on the other side, and he's about to go up the ascent of the Mount of Olives. And it's interesting because I remember, you do too, another, another well, the son of David, crossing the same exact ravine and going up to the place of betrayal in the Garden of Gethsemane. Interesting, the parallels. But reading on, David went up the ascent of olives, the ascent of the Mount of Olives, and he wept as he went. His head was covered and he walked barefoot. I I've walked the Kidron with really nice sandals on, Never done it barefoot, but this is what you do when you're weeping. This is what a man does in deep sorrow. And all the people who were with him each covered his head and went up weeping as they went. Where's Absalom in all this? Remember, he's down in Hebron. So Hebron's quite a ways south of Jerusalem. He's, gonna, he's probably at this point, he's making his way up while David is making his way out. So they're fleeing as Absalom is, is heading that way. Now someone told David, saying, verse 31, um, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. Okay, that, that, would, that would be like someone saying, Rick, Les is with Jake. Well, <laughs> oh 
my. If you didn't hear that at home, let's said have mercy. Okay. <laughs> David said, in response, Ahithophel, he is with your son now. He is, basically, he's betrayed you. David said, oh Lord, I pray, make the counsel of Ahithophel foolishness. That's a great prayer. <laughs> and it happened as David was coming to the summit where God was worshiped. Okay, hold it real quick. I love this. There's so many things you could miss. He's coming to the summit of the Mount of Olives. It says in the NASB where God is worshiped. But it can also translate where he worshiped. Where he worshiped God. So there's one of two things going on here. One is that there's a worship place on the top of the Mount of Olives, which is really cool to me because we worship there every time we go. And by the way, did I tell you we're going to Israel in, in 2025? We are, just putting it out for out. We'll give you the dates. But so anyway, either there was an established place of worship on the top of the Mount of Olives, which would make sense. They, they like to worship up high on mountaintops. Or more likely, what the King James translates is that David gets up to the top and he worships. What? Do you worship on the run? I'll tell you what. We can barely make it to a Wednesday night when we're on the run. <laughs> when I'm busy and, and flooded with stuff and I got, I, 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 I just, I can't, I don't have time. I don't have time. And here's David running for his life, fleeing Jerusalem, fleeing a betraying son and an entire country's coup. And he gets to the top of all of it and stops and he worships God. So let me just suggest to you, there's always time to worship. If you give God the time to worship, he'll give you the time for everything else. He'll, he'll make it up. So David gets up there where God was worshiped, where he worshiped God, and it happened right there. Behold, Hushai the archite met him with his coat torn and dust on his head. Hushai, by the way, means make haste. <laughs> I don't know, maybe it was a short labor for his mom. We're, gonna, we're just gonna call him quick. <laughs> so David said to him, verse 33, if you pass over with me, then you will be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I have been your father's servant in time past, so I will now be your servant, then you can thwart the counsel of Ahithophel for me. Are not Zadok and Abiatar, the priest, with you there? So it shall be that whatever you hear from the king's house, report it. You shall report to Zadok and Abiatar, the priest. Behold, their two sons are with them there, Ahimeaz and, and Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abiatar's son. And by them, you shall send me everything that you hear. So Hushai, David's friend, came into the city, and Absalom came into Jerusalem. We're gonna stop there tonight, but number four, the gift of a foil. The gift of a foil. You've got the gift of, of fellowship and the gift of a friend and, and the gift of faith, and now God has provided for him a foil to the plans of Ahithophel and Absalom. In this man, Hushai, who is also a king's counselor. But David is able to say to him, look, my other counselors betrayed me and is with Absalom. If you are true to me, Go and remain true to me. And you can be a foil to the plans. You can be a spy, if you will. Listen, I am fully convinced 
that this is not David's plan, but David recognizes Hushai showing up was an immediate answer to prayer. What prayer? Oh Lord, I pray, verse 31, make the counsel of Ahithophel foolishness. And immediately, Hushai shows up. And David, now I think, this man is coming back into the spirit. He sees Hushai, he's just prayed, it's like, puts two and two together. This is God's answer. God's answer to my prayer. Isaiah 65, 24 says, it shall also come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they're still speaking, I will hear. And Hushai is, I mean, what a coincidence, right? <laughs> Hushai shows up and David says, go on back. And so Hushai's gonna do that after a shower and a shave. He will, he will be a foil to Absalom's rebellious coup. Where did David meet Hushai? At the summit where he worshiped. Where did God answer David's prayer? At the summit where he worshiped. God will answer more of your heart, more of your prayers, more of your longings, more of your struggles when you're in the place of worship. It truly is remarkable how often there are answers that come when you're praising God and you haven't even thought about that prayer that you prayed two months ago. But suddenly God answers it. Or that prayer you prayed in the car that morning on the way to church and God answers it in the place of worship. This chapter could close out a real bummer, but it doesn't because what we recognize is God has literally walked David across the Cadron up to the top of the Mount of Olives. God is with him. Even if David has felt spiritually weak, even if David doesn't have it together, even if he's struggling with his own faith before the people of Israel, God is with David. That's the key here. It's not Brandy's with the Lord. She is. I know this, but why is Brandy with the Lord? Because the Lord is with Brandy. And again, that's something we get twisted. I'm with you, Lord, I'm with you. And God would say, well, that's good because I was already with you. And God is with David in all this. In fact, this is amazing. David's weakened spirit is getting stronger and stronger and stronger. And I can prove it to you before we leave tonight. Turn to Psalm 3. I'm gonna end right here. The third psalm. Rick, you said you'd end right after the fourth point. Well, this is after the fourth point. <laughs> Don't you love how we have these conversations in the middle of teaching? I... <laughs> Turn to the third psalm. <laughs> we'll finish this out. The third psalm. You see the heading there? A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. So now we know exactly what was on David's heart and we also know exactly when he wrote the psalm. We can know at this point. <laughs> Sorry, I got water all over myself. After a surprisingly good night's sleep, just across the Mount of Olives, while still in the midst of all this kingdom instability, David's faith is wide awake. Listen to this. Oh Lord, how my adversaries have increased Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there's no deliverance for him in God. But you, O oh Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the one who lifts my head. I was crying to the Lord with my voice and he answered me 
from his holy mountain. By the way, his holy mountain would be where the tabernacle is. It'd be right across the valley from the Mount of Olives. David's looking across. God's answered me from his holy mountain. I lay down and slept. What? In the middle of all this? I would think that as stressed out as David must have been, you get to the top of the Mount of Olives, everybody's resting, and you'd be like, eyes wide open all night long. I lay down and slept. I awoke. Why? For the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of 10,000s of people who have set themselves against me round about. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you have smitten all my enemies on the cheek. You shattered the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon, or literally, your blessing upon your people. You see, for all the manipulations and conspiracies of this world, God is David's shield. He is his glory, and he is the one who lifts his head. It's not that you're with God. It's that he's with you. Thou, O Lord, are a shield about me. You're my glory. You're the lifter of my head. Thou, O Lord, are a shield about me. You're my glory. You're the lifter of my head, hallelujah, 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 you're the lifter of my head, sing that again, hallelujah, 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 you're the lifter of my head. He's a shaken king, but God is with him. And the Bible says, Hebrews 12, 28, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable sacrifice with reverence and awe. You may feel shaken, but the kingdom never is. Amen? Amen. Amen. God, thank you so much for your teaching to us tonight and for the reminder. And I'm just gonna say to everybody here, not even in my notes, that you were with David. This whole point, I thought I had all these other points. No, it's, it's you were with David, not David with you. And it's, it's that way with us, Lord. And what a profound and, and wonderful encouragement to us tonight to remember, it is not because we're with you. It is not because we stand strong. It is not because we've done all the right things. Lord, we stand it all because you are with us. You are with me. That is overwhelming. And it is a great encouragement and source of strength. Father, remind every one of us, and may we tonight also sleep soundly and wake in faith 
because you are with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.